We're going to look at Psalm 34 this morning, so if you have your Bibles with you, turn into Psalm 34. As, as we sung this morning the songs together, I trust you're able to see some of those themes that were existent, our, our boasting in the Lord, recognizing His grace is enough, glory be to God, bless His name, songs that, that hopefully point us to a, living a life of worship, a life that recognizes God in His rightful place. So this morning, our text is Psalm 34, and then we also will look briefly at 1 Samuel 21. So if you put your finger there in Psalm 34 and also in 1 Samuel 21, we'll read verses 10 to 15 of that. So let's stand together in honor of God and His Word as we read together. And let's read these verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 34 aloud. Verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Thank you. And if you notice at the beginning of that psalm, perhaps in your Bible, you may have seen a title that says of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. This title is given within the context of 1 Samuel 21, and so I'd like to read this to you as well to help us as we look at God's Word. So listen as I read 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10. It says this, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And the next chapter begins and says this, And David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray together before you are seated. Father, we we love you. And this morning we open your word together, praying and praying knowing that you will speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that our hearts would be open to receive your truth so that we would apply it to our lives to bring about lives that offer praise to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I've entitled my sermon this morning, I hope this is okay, Coke Zero is the choice for me. But I've entitled my sermon this morning, How to Live a Life of Praise. And if we, if we looked simply at the three verses that we read together, we would probably find some good words of encouragement for our souls as we think about a life of worship, offering praise. I will bless the Lord at all times, magnify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. But I found as I, as I began to delve into the text and look at what was happening there, there's some much deeper truths to be gleaned of how to fully live a life of praise. And so as 
as we read from 1 Samuel 21, it gives us a broader context of what's happening as David comes to the place of writing Psalm 34. So as we begin our time this morning, I'd like you to consider this question that I believe is a backdrop for Psalm 34. Not in the text, but we could see it evident. The question is this, what are you afraid of? What causes fear in your heart? We could see David's fear of Achish, that was evident. It was founded. But what we also see as his, is that his fear had such a profound impact on his heart, on his mind, his, even his psyche, that it, it changed his behavior. The way that he acted, the way that he spoke, the way that he chose to respond to the circumstance surrounding him, the people that were about, around him. And so sometimes we all find ourselves in situations like this. We're afraid someone scares us or shocks us. It might alter the way you respond or something that you do. I'm reminded of a, of a time in our offices at the farmhouse. I love our offices at the farmhouse. They're very, very nice, and we're thankful for those. But there, there's a few times of season where they, where they sit on the property that we get some field mice in, in the house and... But thankfully, we have, we have Kent Clover there, so n no need to fear. But, uh, but I do remember a time on occasion, I was, I was coming down the stairs, and I, I think I missed the best part, but there was one of our staff standing on a chair. And I don't mean like changing the light bulb or testing its strength, but she or he was in, was in terror. Apparently, she had seen one of these angry, sharp, tooth, savage little field mice, and it changed her behavior in that in that moment in that instant i guess if i had come down a moment or two earlier maybe i would have seen jumping or dancing or screaming i don't know but whatever it was the fear that struck in this moment altered her behavior in a drastic way there's a different kind of fear that i believe scripture is addressing here but, but fear in itself is, the, is something that is common to all of us as we hear the word. I asked my kids to help me out with, with knowing what fear was. And so I, I went to them. I have a 12-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And I asked them, I said, what are you afraid of? Here's what they told me. So just in a simple word or two. Emma, what are you afraid of? She said she's afraid of tornadoes. Understandable. I asked my, my 4-year-old Jacob, what are you afraid of, Jake? And he said, I'm afraid of bad guys with swords. Now, if you know, that is so Jacob, if you know him. And then I asked my, my little three-year-old daughter, Madeline, I said, sweetie, what, what are you afraid of? And she said, without even thinking, spiders, they're going to get me. So even, even to the three-year-olds, they have a concept of what fear is, what it looks like, how it affects them. So I ask again, what are, what are you afraid of? What, what things come into our lives, people or circumstances, that change the way we behave? That's what happened here. We think of many things that we could be afraid of. Fear of rejection, fear of failure, fear of the unknown, fear of financial difficulty, fear of whatever, you fill in the blank. We all have the the ability to understand and know the power that fear has on our minds, on our souls, even as it would alter our behavior. And so even as we see that in David's life, I would be amiss to think that there are, there are some here, perhaps all of us, 
right now in this moment who are struggling with a fear that has overtaken your, your mind, overtaken your heart, your ability to think and respond rightly. So for us to do that, I would like us to consider this text, to consider how to live a life of praise with that question mind, fear. And I came, I came to three, three things or three uh, ingredients or characteristics of a life that offers praise to God. This isn't exhaustive or complete. It's simply what I found in the text as I, as I studied and found what God is teaching me through his word. The first thing that I find from our, from our context is, number one, as you live a life of praise, you must first forsake yourself. Forsake yourself. As you look at the context of 1 Samuel 21, if we were to go back to chapter 20 and just look at all that was going on in David's life, we would see what was happening that would cause his fear. Saul threatens to kill David. Um, and if you read the, the context, there were several days in a row David didn't show up for meal, for supper. And Saul finally says to Jonathan, where's David? And Jonathan makes up an excuse for David, knowing full well they had arranged something to happen to allow him to escape. And so finally Saul in his anger said to Jonathan, you're in cahoots with him, and this man is unloyal, and I'm going to kill him. And in anger, he threw his spear to kill his own son. So Jonathan goes out, having made all the arrangements already with David, takes word. And if you recall, there was this plan or arrangement that if the, if the servant threw the, shot the arrow beyond, then David was to escape. And so that was what happened. Jonathan and David had a tearful goodbye, and David begins to run for his life from King Saul. So Jonathan warns David, and we see in chapter 21, David flees to Nob. Again, he's acting in his own strength, his own flawed wisdom, his own trying to protect himself. He goes to Nod and talks, consults with the priest Ahimelech, where he secured Goliath's sword. That is the place also where if you read one of Saul's servants, Doeg was present, heard what was happening took the report back to Saul and said, hey, David's here. What happened? Saul and his armies came to Nod and wound up slaughtering Ahimelech and all the other priests that were there in Nob. From there, David flees to Achish, the king of Gath. And it is there that David is seeking refuge. And as we read earlier, the Philistines recognize him as this great warrior from of old, the great king over the people of Israel that God had anointed. And he's no friend of the Philistines, of course, and he has no friend in Gath. In fact, he's probably perceived as an enemy of the state. So David hears these words from servants talking about him. Is this not David, the king of the land? Did, did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Can you hear the tune? How does it say David responded? David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. This isn't a very flattering portrait in the life of the great hero of Israel. As fear struck him and affected his behavior, he forsook what he knew to be true and thought more of his own abilities and strength to try to deliver himself, the man after God's own heart. 
He was wrestling with fear in the same way that all of God's people wrestle with fear. And he took his protection and deliverance into his own hands. He was afraid. So as we come to Psalm 34, and we see that title of how he responded, how he changed his behavior before Abimelech, we need to be thinking in terms of why would David change his behavior? And, and we also need to be careful that we don't judge him too harshly. But rather, as we think about what we understand of our own experiences with fear, perhaps it will cause us to sympathize with him and to recognize that David is, is not a perfect man. We can look at other texts and passages, and I'm sure you've read them all, of the flaws that David had, the weaknesses that he had. It should allow us to come to a place to recognize that David was a man just like we are. He struggled in the same ways that we did. He sinned in many of the same ways that we do. He had flawed wisdom, flawed thinking, and it affected his behavior here in a very real way. So one thing I want to answer before we dig into the text, and that is maybe you saw the, the contradiction potential there of, of Abimelech and Ahimelech. Those are not the same person. Um, Abimelech serves more as a title, similar to that of a pharaoh or a Caesar. And so when it, when it references Abimelech, it is talking about the title. So the king's name was Achish. His title was Abimelech, and Ahimelech was the name of the priest in Nod, two different people. So what we see here is that David's fear is real. What we also see is that Achish is not a happy man. In fact, neither are any of the other influential people around him and his throne. The, the song of celebration that may have been existed in Israel, it wasn't playing on the radio stations in Gath. And so David was, when we read that David was much afraid, it probably is a huge understatement. They probably do not adequately convey what David really felt in his heart. And so it is his fear that we see altered his behavior. It says in 1 Samuel 21, he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane. Fear does that kind of thing. It changes our behavior. Sometimes it changes our words, our perspectives, our viewpoints. And maybe it's in those times I would pray and hope that the Holy Spirit is in your heart saying to you, why are you doing this? You don't really believe that. You don't really think that way. But yet as we choose not to forsake ourselves, but choose our own way, we are guided and directed by fear. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts the Lord is safe. In John 12, 42, John writes, Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What an indictment. In Luke, Jesus says this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you with whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So as we think about forsaking ourselves, and even forsaking our, our own fears that affect our behavior, 
Let's look at two ways that our, our behavior has changed. One is, one question I guess I could say is, how has the fear of man first affected or altered your behavior in the past? Maybe even in this very moment, there is a fear of man that you are struggling with, grappling with, that is born out of fear of another person or a group that's causing you to act differently. You don't want people to think poorly of you, and so you choose to respond or behave in a different way. You, you want to maintain that acceptance or that, that cool factor. When you're with colleagues at work, you act a different way or you, you talk or speak a different way. When you're with your church friends here or in care group gatherings or spiritual friends, Bible studies, you talk and act a different way. Why is that? Is, is it fear that is driving both of these things? This is not the kind of fear that God wants us to live under. So not only is it a question of a fear of man, but perhaps the second question to consider is, how have the fear of difficult circumstances, situations surrounding your life even now, affected your behavior, the way that you choose to respond? This is, I believe, where, where David was, what David was facing He's thinking about in Gath how he could have been taken into activity and attacked, possibly, most likely, his life taken as well. He wasn't a close ally. He had no friends around. He was all alone. And so because of this fear, he began to get this what's going to happen to me mentality. How can I rescue myself out of this? And he put on the, the army strategist hat and began to do his work and came to the place in such a fear that he begins to use his own imagination and where does it lead him to act but like a crazy man spitting on his beard and who knows what sadly and strategically his plan worked at least for the time it wasn't a characteristic of a life that offers praise to god yet god in his grace and goodness and kindness not only allowed David to escape, but also began to change David's heart. And so as we look at Psalm 34, we begin to see a, a testimony of what's happening in David's heart and how he is beginning to see that his hope, that his fears are not found or delivered in himself, but rather in a right fear and understanding of who God is. And so that leads us to our, our second characteristic as we begin to look at the text. So not only does a life that offers praise to God forsake itself or him and herself, but also it fears God. A life that offers praise to God fears, uh, praise God, fears God. Let's work through Psalm 34 in our remaining time together. I believe that the reality is that God wants us to fear something, more specifically someone. He wants us to fear him exclusively. The interesting thing about that is that you can't be fearing God and fearing man or other things in the same way that God has designed. What do I mean by that? In the context of David's life and this story, we see very clearly that God, or pardon me, that David could not be fearing Achish, the king of Gath, and God at the same time in a right way. He could not be doing both of these things and living a life of praise to God. 
Now God is doing some things for us here, and even as he works in David's heart, David writes some things to give us the right perspective. And so what I'd like to do is to give you three, and if we have time, I won't, maybe four points regarding the fear of God, right from the text. We've already read verses 1 to 3, but if we look right at verse 4 of Psalm 34, it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. The first thing that we see there about the fear of God is God promises deliverance to those who fear him. God promises deliverance. This term for fear here is used broadly and widely in Scripture, and it's talking about the type of fear that brings terror or dread in our heart. We all know what type of experience that we could have in our own life to define or describe that fear. And so in this text, it's not too strong of a word to describe David's circumstance. But look at the result of David's heart and behavior as he finds deliverance from his fear. What does it say in verse 5? It says, those who look to him are radiant. What a, what a change in this countenance that we see from the insane crazy man with spit in his beard to a man whose countenance is radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed it says what's the difference how how is there this drastic change the difference is the object of his fear he's not fearing two things anymore but rather he's having a right understanding acknowledgement of a fear of god when you're living a life in the fear of achish fear of man, you begin to do crazy things, dishonorable things, humiliating things. But when you live your life in a right fear of God, and you begin to turn your heart towards him, offering a life of praise, allowing him to do his work, what's it say? He causes your face to shine because of what you're finding in him, deliverance. Verse 6, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Those two words there of trouble, they also can be understood for distress or anxiety. So it's not just a fear out of sheer terror, but even the, even the moments in our lives where we are stressed out, we're overwhelmed, we're nervous, we're not certain how things are going to get resolved. It's in those circumstances that God promises deliverance to those who fear him. We're talking about significant things. Number two, at verse seven, we see that God promises protection to those who fear him. Look at verse seven. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. He promises protection. The term encamp there is used in multiple settings in scripture to convey the idea of a protective position. The best way I could give you an example of that is from Numbers 153, where it's you don't need to turn there, but it's talking about where the Levites were commanded by God to encamp around the tabernacle of testimony. In that context, it says, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel, and the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. So why did they have to do that? For two reasons. One, they were protecting the people from God's glory in all of its fullness as it was coming down to dwell in the camp. And secondly, to literally just to protect the tabernacle in itself. It was for the benefit of the people. In 2 Kings 6, there's another wonderful testimony we think about encamping and being all around by the armies. Elisha 
and the servant are there, and there's an enemy that is coming upon them to take them over. And, and Elisha's servant is very much afraid. And so Elisha prays this very famous prayer where he says, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And as, as the Lord opens the eyes of this young man, he saw, and behold, it says, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What, what a picture of what it means to be encamped around by the angel of the Lord for those who fear him. What a promise to claim that David had. That's pretty cool. So let me ask this question. If, if the angel of the Lord encamps around his people, does he bring support with him? The simple answer is yes, although he alone would be enough. But I think God in his awesome power we see throughout scripture that he comes when he comes comes with all of the resources at his command to protect to defend to deliver god is promising that kind of protection that kind of deliverance for those who fear him you see david david could not see that he was encamped around by the armies of God to deliver him. All he could see was Achish. He was living in this little world of himself, and all he was seeing was Achish. All he was hearing were the comments of these servants talking about his reputation. But what's happening is God is beginning to change the view of his heart, changing the, the perspective of his soul, and so David begins to write the testimony of what he has come to know and experience an understanding that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. There's a third promise. Number one, God promises deliverance to those who fear him. Number two, God promises protection to those who fear him. And number three, in verse eight and nine, God promises blessing. God promises blessing to those who fear him. A very well-known verse, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. There's three commands here that we'll, we'll look at briefly together. Taste, see, and fear. We'll spend a little time here on taste and see. They seem to go together, all of these commands, in such a way that they can't be separated. You can't taste something and not see it, and you can't see something and not taste it. And in order to have that, you need to have a right understanding of fear. They go together. The term here for taste has the idea of examining something. The literal, literal sense means with your taste buds. It's what you would do if you're trying to gain an understanding of what a particular food tasted like. But we're not talking here about literally tasting of the goodness of the Lord, but rather we're talking about it in a descriptive way. The term is similarly used in Proverbs 31.18 where it talks about the wise woman. The godly wife and mother, happy Mother's Day, got that in there. Uh, she was a blessing to her household. And listen to this here as it describes her. It says, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. It's that same terminology, perceive. It, it was translated differently because no one would understand or no one would say that she tastes her merchandise and discerns it as profitable. It, does, it doesn't make sense. 
And so you can see that there's an examination taking place, a gaining of understanding of the nature and substance of the merchandise. We're commanded by God to actually taste in order that we may see that he is good. It's the same term that I would guess Peter alludes to in 1 Peter 2, when he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that it, by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We see the second command given. Not only are we to taste, but also to see that the Lord is good. Seeing is done with a view of understanding that is gained by experience. We're understanding in such a way that we are going after this aspect of his existence, the Lord's goodness. We're asking ourselves the question, is God good? How is God good? To answer that question, is God good? Yes, he is. And then we must ask, what does that look like? It's a very different definition than I believe we often will use to describe something that is good. When my son obeys and I say, Jacob, you're such a good boy, that's not the same description. When I, when I happened to grill some good pork chops last night and they were good, it's not the same description here. It's talking about the goodness of the Lord. God's word has a lot to say about that. James 1 says every good gift and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. Psalm 84, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Matthew 7, verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Hebrews 12, for they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. It's a very different understanding of what it means to say that God is good, that his goodness is evident. Let me give you another example of what this means to help us understand it. Exodus thirty-three nineteen, we see in this account, Moses, the friend of God, makes a request of the, of the Lord. He says, Lord, in verse 18 of, of Exodus 33, please show me your glory. And the Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then in chapter 34, as it goes on, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. What does God's goodness look like? It looks like his graciousness. It looks like his mercy, his loving kindness, his abounding and steadfast love and faithfulness. Can we think 
Can we think in our lives of times where we have seen those things, where we have experienced things, where we have come to understand that reality that the Lord is good? This is a fulfillment of God's promise as it passes before Moses. It's not just a visible sight of God's glory, but rather a clear, revealed description that God gives. I am a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is what it means to be good in this text. When we're meditating on that perfect character of God, on that perfect goodness of God, suddenly whatever whatever we've been alarmed by, whatever has come into our life to bring about fear, it should diminish greatly. It should be swallowed up when we begin to set our, our hearts on tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. There's a third command there. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. We've already gone there with our characteristic of knowing that we are to fear God. But I will note that David inserts a word of encouragement there before he gives that command. He says, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. This is where I believe that, that David winds up in his understanding of, of tasting and seeing that, that God is good. He finds his, his refuge, his security and safety, his help in a God who is absolutely perfect in all of his ways. When that happens, the real th threat that David felt began to diminish. In the same way as we fear the Lord, as we taste and see that he is good, the real threats of fear, whether it be man, whether it be circumstances, they begin to lessen. It begins to put it perspective whatever achish you are dealing with. It makes clear sense of why David is able to say, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He gets it. He's fearing God in the right way. He knows that God is his ultimate refuge. He's abundantly and perfectly supplied in everything that you need. Part of that blessing is in that moment, in that time where we feel inadequate or the initial fear begins to set in. We have what is perfectly supplied in the goodness of God. Blessed is the man that takes refuge. Look with me quickly to verse 16 to 18 as we think about the fearing God and, and seeking refuge in Him. It says in verse 16 that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As we think about God's refuge and protection of us as we fear Him, it's interesting to note how God is for us. It's one thing for David to have said, I'm against you. You see, David, David was a, a mighty warrior. We, we oftentimes want to leave David as that shepherd boy who, who had little pebbles that he killed Goliath with, with a sling. But we forget that he grew up to be a, a powerful, sharp, intelligent, well-trained killing machine, if you will. I joked in first service, got a text message. I mean, if we think of it in today's terms, he was like Chuck Norris, right? Who can beat Chuck Norris? He was a real threat 
to those around him. And so to find him in this place of fear and of finding refuge in Almighty God, it, it begins to put in perspective the nature of who God is, the power that God holds. And so when, when we see that the face of the Lord is against those, it takes it up a level. He's against those who do evil. And how does he do that? It says to cut off the memory of them from the earth. That's strong. That's, that's powerful. He wipes them away from the earth. His face is against them that would do evil. And so as David reads that, he, he's blessed. He's encouraged. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. It's not only for those who are fearful, it's for those who are broken, for those who are in seasons of hurt and sorrow, in pain and suffering. The Lord hears and delivers. He is our refuge and our strength. He is good. Notice that it says in that fear in verse 9, that fear the Lord, you his saints. It's the encouragement for the believer to be aware, to live in fear of the Lord means that we live in constant awareness of God's presence. Sometimes that will leave us trembling. Trembling, perhaps not that it's a fear that God's going to zap you if you step out of line, although he, he would be right to do that. But he will discipline us as his children. Or maybe it sometimes should cause you to rejoice, to be filled with expressions of joy as you think about, rightly, the fear of God, of the Lord. To be able to say, God, you are here in this place. To say, God, you have blessed me in, in amazing ways. You have provided for my needs in ways I could never have provided on my own. Lord, you have, you have answered my prayer in a way much greater than I could have thought. The fear of the Lord expresses itself in many different ways. It's living in the constant awareness of God's presence. There's a book, a devotional book by Jerry Bridges called The Fruitful Life. And in it, he gives uh, what, what I find three essential ingredients of the fear of God. They are this. Number one, correct concept of God's character. The first essential ingredient of the fear of God is a correct concept of God's character. Number two, a pervasive sense of God's presence. And number three, a constant awareness of our obligation to God. Number one, correct concept of the character of God. Number two, a pervasive sense of the presence of God. And number three, a constant awareness of our obligation to God. That was, that was really helpful for me. It, it, I believe it's expanded some of the things I've already shared with you this morning about a right understanding of what it means to fear God. But that, that third part there, I, perhaps only for me, is an area where I fail or struggle. The constant awareness of my obligation to God. As I begin to have a right understanding of what it means to fear God and what it means to have a sense of his presence, how does that change or alter my response, my obligation? See, nobody faults David for fleeing Saul 
But the fact that he chose to flee Gath and to place himself under the authority of a leader who was really not interested in protecting him, caring for him, is a demonstration that in that moment, David was not living in a constant awareness of his obligation to God. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, My Time is Fleeting Quickly, there's two statements that are in that book that I, I love. The first is this, relating to the fear of man. It says, all experiences of the fear of man share at least one common feature. People are big. They have grown to idolatrous proportions in our lives. They control us. And since there is no room in our hearts to worship both God and people, whenever people are big, God is not. Therefore, the first task in escaping the snare of the fear of man is to know that God is awesome and glorious and no other people. Is that the way that, that you live your life as you, offer, as you seek to offer praise to God? That's not the way that David was living as he was not forsaking himself, as he was not living in fear of God. In fact, he, he turned it upside down, didn't he? He didn't say that God was awesome and glorious, but he rather said Achish is bigger and more awesome and more glorious, more intimidating, more scary than the actual God who created and delivered him. We say that in our own lives that those things are more powerful than the God who created us and redeemed us. As I read the passage earlier in Exodus 33, there was that last verse of verse 9 that I love where as Moses saw God's glory, we see what happened. It says, Moses bowed to the earth, and, and he does what? He worshiped. He worshiped. He, he had a constant awareness of his obligation to God because he had a right understanding of God's character. He had a right understanding of God's presence. And it brought him to the place where he worshiped God. David's life in this chapter serves as an instrument to give us this word of perspective and strength as we worship him. Verse 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. A blessing is that as we look at Scripture in its entirety, we have the blessing of seeing the full story, the full context. And so even as we see how David was delivered and God did great things through him, we also see the reasoning of why this verse is in there. Perhaps you didn't catch that as I read that. No, no bone was broken. Not one of his bones would be broken. That's a, a prophetic word that refers to Christ. John 19, he, John writes these words, He who saw it has borne witness. This is John talking about the crucifixion. My testimony is true, and I know that I am telling the truth that you may also believe. These things took place, he writes, that scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. I would say that if, if you read Psalm 34 by itself, maybe you would have just glossed right over that verse and not see how it's linked to Christ. But John is making very clear prophecy about our Lord, our Savior. He goes on in verse 21 and 22 
David does and, and writes, Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. See, part of the assurance that we have, the hope, the blessing that we have, as we look at God's word today in the full context of even Psalm 34, 22, is that we see that God fulfilled a very specific prophecy concerning his son, the Messiah, that not one of his bones would be broken. Death did not overtake Christ. His adversaries did not win the day, but rather Christ accomplished all the things for which he was ordained by God. All the things for which he was sent to the earth. As I said, we have the benefit of seeing how David's life unfolded. As Saul was making an attempt to kill him, which would have brought an end to God's purposes, we know that that is not what happened. We have the rest of the story. God was delivering, God was redeeming David for his purpose, for his plan. God redeemed his son, Christ, for his divine perfect purpose and plan. God has redeemed us for his perfect plan and purpose. So the, the third, I guess, characteristic of a life that offers praise to God is that it follows Christ. And not just to follow Christ in giving your life to him, although it does, but rather to look at the, the ultimate example of Christ forsaking himself and having a right fear of God. It's unexpected, but, but this psalm takes us, it takes us right to the Lord. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate example is of one who did not live in the fear of man, but rather lived in the perfect fear of God. Constantly aware of his presence, God's presence, aware of his obligation to do God's will. He was our remarkable hero and savior. So as we think of the text, as we look at how God transformed David's life, may we not say, I want to follow after David, the man after God's own heart, but rather, may we say with conviction, may we follow Christ, our Savior. We should not allow our circumstances to be greater than our God. That's my prayer. That's my hope this morning, that as, as we offer a life, of praise to God, that we would forsake ourselves, that we would fear God, and that we would follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we, we know that there is refuge and strength, there is deliverance and protection, and the promise of blessing to those who fear you and trust in you. And so this morning, as we have heard what it looks like to live in your fear, to be aware of your presence. Lord, may we worship you. May we come to that place where Moses did, where we see your goodness all around us and offer praise to you. How great are you, Lord. May we lift that up today and until you come again to take us to yourself. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.